Well, I understand that what I've done here the last couple of days may have taken your ideas about how you think about God and complicated it a little bit. You might have come in thinking pleasant thoughts about God, peaceful thoughts about God, and, and I'm trying to help you see the fear of God, and that may be hard for you to compute. It doesn't seem to make sense that you would be close to God, you would love God, you would sing to God, you would pray to God, and yet you have this thing called fear that's supposed to be a dominant part of it. Uh, I understand that, and, and I just want to keep driving that difficulty deeper and deeper into your thinking. Psalm 25, 14, I think, summarizes it, it, summarizes it as succinctly as any verse in the Bible. It says, the friendship of the Lord, and that's what we want. And that may be what you came in thinking you had, and, and that's what we would like to believe we could achieve, a friendship with God. It says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. That's the whole point, is that to fear God, it's a necessary requirement for me to be close to God, to draw near to God, to have a friendship with God. To be a friend with God is not to think casually about God, it's to think about Him as He really is, which is high and exalted, transcendent, majestic, powerful, one who made us, sustains us, and can end our lives at any time. That flavors, it, it, it tempers, it gives a feel to the kind of thinking and praying and worship and thoughts we have about God, and that's just how it works. But what we want is, is friendship with the Lord, and, and I want to be clear because I've dealt with the concept here and there throughout the last couple of days, but I want to make sure you hear it, maybe with some different words, but clearly that you don't leave this camp thinking you're a friend of God without understanding the gospel. Uh, of course, I'm trying to help you whether you understand the gospel or not to think rightly about God, but if you're a Christian in particular, I need you to, to, to work constantly to shape and develop your thinking about God to make sure you can say, yes, I fear the Lord. He's my friend, I love him, but I fear the Lord. But you can't be in a right relationship with God without understanding the gospel. So I'm going to give you eight summary statements that might be helpful. If you want to be a friend of God and you're not sure if you are, it, you, everybody has to admit that God is in charge. Uh, you cannot come to God as someone who you want to benefit your life eternally, let you into eternal life, a place where there's no sin and no mourning and no crying, no shame, no no pain, and think that you're going to, uh, to have that assurance, but you don't see him as the one in charge. Uh, I don't see my insurance agent as in charge of my life, uh, but I have insurance so that if something happens to my car or to my home, uh, then he'll take care of that. But I don't see him as in charge. And some people think about God that way. It's just like buying insurance because I don't want to go to hell, and I hope if I can do whatever I'm supposed to do with God, I can kind of get that taken care of. Um, that's not how it works. You have to get God in the rightful place in your mind that He is in charge of all things, and that certainly is a component of fearing the Lord, is understanding His power, and that all things are dependent on Him, including you. Uh, you've got to realize you don't measure up. Uh, that's the word in the New Testament for sin. The most common word is that you fall short. You don't measure up. You're not who you're supposed to be. You're not the, uh, you know, the 16-year-old you should be. You're not the 14-year-old you should be. You're not the 18-year-old you should be. You are less than what you ought to be. Morally, you fail. You don't do what you should do. You don't think the way you should think. 
That's called sin, and all of us are sinners, and that just means you don't measure up. You should know that uh, you have before God a debt that needs to be paid, and the right way to think about your life and his life is that he, as the almighty God, should punish you because of your moral failures, because of your sin. And if you don't admit that, if you don't realize that, if you don't know that, then you don't, you don't have any hope of being in right relationship with God. You would never even imagine to be a friend of God unless you understand that you deserve God's punishment, that you deserve to be in hell, that you deserve to have the judgment of your sins be upon your own life. Number four, you've got to believe that Christ came to live in your place. You are not the 16-year-old you should be, but Jesus was the 16-year-old you should be. You're not the 13-year-old you should be, but Jesus was the 13-year-old that you should be. You follow this. He lived everything about human life the right way. And he wants to take all of that human perfection and he wants to attribute that to you. He's God. And the reason he can attribute more than one human righteous package to one more than one person is because he has infinite worth. So Jesus comes and he lives the life that we all should live. He lives it properly before his father, before God the father. And that's the arrangement. He comes. To, he didn't come just to die. If he came to die, he could have showed up a day before his, his execution. But he came to live the whole human span of life so that he could live it properly. We need to understand that Christ suffered for your sins. I showed that picture of Jesus uh, carrying his cross as Jesus uh, standing before Pontius Pilate and being condemned to die. All of that was because of our sin, and our sin deserves punishment, and God was going to take the punishment that we deserve, the eternal punishment, and punish the eternal one, and that experience would be so grave and so serious that that could pay for my sinful behaviors, all my lack, all my moral failures. Christ paid for that. He suffered so that I wouldn't have to. Number six, if I'm going to be the one who experiences the benefit of Jesus' life and death, I've got to wholeheartedly or sincerely turn from my sin. I need to say, I am not going to sin anymore. It doesn't mean you won't sin, but it means you are fully purposed to say, I'm turning away from a life of doing it my way because my way didn't work. It fell short of God's standard. So I'm turning from sin. The biblical word for that is repentance. That's what number six is all about, repentance. And I've got to turn or rather trust in all that Christ did. He lived for me. He died for me. I need to trust in that. If I were to die today and stand before God, I want to be able to say, I think that I will be accepted before you, not because of my good works, but because of what Christ did. Christ lived for me. He died for me. My penalty on his cross, his righteous life onto my account, and that exchange is the only hope I have. And I'm trusting in all that Christ did. And then, if that's really what's taking place in my life, well, then from that point on of me recognizing my sin, admitting God's in charge, knowing I should be punished, Christ came to live in my place, he died in my place, I'm turning from sin, I'm trusting in the Lord, then from this point on, I'm going to live like he's in charge. That's why I'm going to read the Bible every day. That's why I'm going to pray every day. I need to talk to God about the things in his word so that I can ask him to help me live that out and do the Christian life the way that he expects me to. Now, you'll notice the thing that's the hardest about these eight things that summarize the gospel. It's all of this. It's I don't measure up. That's called sin. He came to be punished for my sins. Christ suffered for my sins. I need to turn from my sins. All this sin talk, that's the problem. Because most people, if you ask them, right, are you a good person? They're going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. 
Most people think they're good people. As a matter of fact, no one thinks they're better than teenagers. Students think that they are better than most people, right? If you, if you talk about the realities of people's self-perception, even though they talk about teenagers having a really hard time with their self-esteem, the reality of their concern about their self-esteem every day is really based on the fact that they're concerned about themselves. And they're often in their own minds trying to jockey around in their own thinking about how they compare with everyone else. And most people do think that they're better than the next guy. And all I'm trying to say is that sin is the hard thing for us to accept that we say before God that we are sinners and deserve God's punishment and that I need someone to pay for those sins. Isaiah 59.2 says it's our iniquities that have made the separation between us and God. It's sin that's hidden his face from us so that he does not hear us. The separation between us and God is because of our sins. The next verse goes on to say, some of you have memorized verse two. Here's verse three. For your hands are defiled with blood. Think about that. It was an interesting statement that the crowd made when Jesus was being crucified and Pilate was trying to say, well, wait a minute, he didn't do anything wrong. And they said, listen, let his blood be upon us. In other words, you blame us for the fact that he's dying which, of course, was recorded in the Gospels because it's a, it, they didn't mean it this way, but it's a perfect summation of what he came to do. He came to have his death be applied to us so that we could be forgiven. Just like the door posts were covered with the lamb's blood when they were coming out of Exodus so that God's judgment wouldn't come on that house. It's called the Passover. You'd smear the blood on the doorpost and the judgment would not come upon that household and kill the firstborn. And so it was that the blood needs to be applied to us, which is a statement about the fact that his death needs to, to take the place of the punishment that I deserve. And the point is, I've got blood on my hands, even if I haven't murdered anybody, because most of the people that Isaiah was writing to here, they hadn't murdered anybody, but they had blood on their hands, ultimately because our sin requires the atonement of Christ. Christ. And the fingers are filled with iniquity, something that is not right, the things you don't do that are, aren't right iniquity. You can see the word equity in that or equal or doing what is just or right. If you've done things that aren't fair in some way with your life, it's as, it's as though your fingers are stained with that injustice. Your lips have spoken lies. Right? No one in the room has told the truth all the time. The deception's constant with human beings. And even as Christians, James 3 says, we have such trouble saying the right things, the truthful things with our mouth. And your tongue mutters, wickedness. You say a lot of things under your breath, things you wouldn't want other people to hear that God says are wrong and sinful. This is the problem and it needs to be fixed. And no one is born into a relationship with God. They have to understand, as I've summarized, that these eight components of the gospel and they need to appropriate this to themselves. And that's what the camp is all about. Second Corinthians chapter five says that we have come here as leaders, as boat drivers, as hospitality leaders, as small group leaders, as people that are coming here to say to you as ambassadors and representatives of Christ, we are Christians, we are right with God because we put our trust in God. Those eight things are old hat to us, but we're saying to you students, we want to appeal to you as though Christ were making his appeal through us. That's why I want to speak so strongly to you because I want Christ's voice to be heard in what I'm saying. I need you to hear the appeal. And here's a strong word, we implore you, we beg you. We're saying it as strongly as we can. On, on behalf of Christ, you need to be reconciled to God. You need to be made right with God. You need the gospel to be understood. You need to appropriate it. And the hard thing is understanding our own sin and admitting it. And that's where he goes next in verse 21, for our sake. This is the whole point of Christ's coming. 
He, God the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, to be treated on the cross as though he were the sinner that you and I were. He had known no sin, right? He didn't have any sin committed in his life so that his perfect human righteous life could be applied to us so that in him I could be seen in him. We might become the righteousness of God. I stand before God completely qualified, 100% ready to be into the presence of God. That's a fantastic statement for most people. Roman Catholics can't believe that statement. They say, no, you got to go to purgatory and purge off the sins. Most religions say, well, you're not quite ready yet. You ask most religious people in all the other world religions, are you ready for heaven? Are you fit for God? They say, I don't think so. You know, we, I, I hope so. Maybe, maybe God would be merciful. Islam always talks about mercy. We just hope God will overlook my sin. But we're saying, no, God is a holy God. The only way for us to be made right with God is to be made righteous in Christ because my sin has been placed on him and his righteousness has been placed on me because I'm seen in Christ because I understand the gospel and I've responded to it. But again, the hardest part is recognizing our sin. And some of you in the room tonight need to become Christians. You need to be reconciled to God. I'm begging you. I'm imploring you on behalf of Christ. Tonight, you need to be reconciled to God. But you've got to begin by acknowledging your sin. You've got to say, yes, I am a sinner. I deserve to be punished. I do deserve God's judgment. And I need to acknowledge that to God, not to me. I need to say, I'm not going to cover up the unjust things that I've done. I'm going to say, I will confess the word confess. I will agree with God about what he thinks of me. And he knows that I'm a sinner. I said, I will confess my transgressions, the way I've gone past what I should do. I mean, there's transgressions going on all throughout the camp since you've been here. People have known the right thing to do, and they haven't done the right thing. They've gone beyond what God has said and, and transgressed God. We need to say, I, I agree with God. God, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've even sinned this week. And if we do this, if we acknowledge and don't cover, we confess. The Bible says that he will forgive the iniquity of my sin. And the only way to do that is for us to understand that Christ came to erase it because of his work on the cross. I would beg some of you to do business with God tonight because here we're talking about the fear of God and the friendship of God. And I'm saying, yeah, the friendship of God is for those who fear him. And some people think they're friends with God. They've never feared God. They don't fear God because they don't see his justice. They don't see his power. They don't see his holiness. They don't see their need to admit their sin. They don't even think they are big sinners. I don't think there's anybody who becomes a real Christian who doesn't recognize that the death on the cross is a dramatic reminder of just how sinful we are. And as we confess it, as we acknowledge it, as we cease to cover it up, we say, I get this. This is my problem. My iniquities, my sins have made a separation between me and God. I know that my life has been stained with sin, but I want to be clean. And the Bible says you can be, but you've got to understand what the component parts of the gospel are. It starts with God being in charge and ends with God being in charge. God is in charge. That puts everything in perspective. That's the first point. Number eight, I got to live from this point on like God is in charge. But it's not just about you forgetting two, three, four, five, six, and seven, because here's the real issue. Do we understand the gospel? Some people say, well, I'm starting to learn God is in charge. And the worst thing I could do for you this week is to get you to think God is so great and powerful and in charge. And so you're going to leave trying to do number eight, which is I'm going to try and live like he's in charge from now on. But if we don't recognize the gospel, that we have a sin problem, that we don't measure up, that Christ went to the cross because of you and your sin. And that if we were willing to say tonight that we're sinners, acknowledge our sin, cease to cover it, 
confess it, you could leave forgiven tonight. And that'd be a good thing. That's just a reminder of what we're here for, ultimately. But let's just say, for sake of argument, that everyone now is there. Fantastic. Um, I want to go back to our theme verse here, and I want to say, how do we make this work in everyday life as it relates to everything else that I'm going to face between now and the time that I die? How do I understand the fear of God affecting all of that? Let's go back to our theme verse here on the screen. Don't even try to take notes on this, but at least stare at the screen and let's just piece this out on the screen and make sense of this passage. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And we've read that every night so far. Keep reading now. Are not five sparrows, five birds, sold for two pennies? Back in the Old Testament times, going into the Temple Mount, you could get two sparrows for two pennies, or five sparrows for two pennies. And not one of them is forgotten before God. As Matthew says in this passage, as he's explaining, he gives more of the verbiage of Christ and what he said here about even one falling from a tree. None of, them, none of that happens apart from God's sovereignty. God cares for the birds. Why, he says, think about you. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered, which we should know from reading passages in the Old Testament like Psalm 139. God's thoughts about us are like the sand of the seashore. There's a million things he's thought about you as God, as creator, as sustainer of your life. He knows everything about you as we said last night. And even the hairs on your head, as weird as that is to say, God knows how many hairs you have on the top of your head. Even you don't know that about yourself. Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. Now, that's our passage that we've started with. And we said, okay, this is a key text in our theme series this week. But I want you to put three phrases in this together in your mind. You, my friends. That's how it starts. And then he says, I tell you, fear him. So you, my friends, I tell you, fear him. Friends, fear him. And then he says this, fear not. Now, this is weird, right? I tell you to fear him. And then he says, fear not. So we got to make sense of all this, starting with, okay, if he's going to say, I tell you, fear him, fear God, who has the ability and the authority and the capacity to not only kill you, but the authority to cast you into hell. He says, fear him. I tell you, fear him, but he just said, you are my friends. Well, that's the verse we started with tonight. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. See, so I can be called Jesus's friend. I can be called God the Father's friend if I fear God. So fear him, and then I'm his friend. Okay, now there's a lot between that. That's why we started with explaining a little bit of the gospel. But the weird thing is now he goes on to say, fear not. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to fear? Am I not supposed to fear? Well, fear not. What am I not supposed to fear in this passage? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, right? So fear not. I don't want you to fear the worst thing that could happen to you. Someone, as you leave tonight, could come up and mug you and beat you and, and, and kill you. That would be like a, a horrible way to end the night. And, and, and the reality is, he says, don't fear that. Fear something bigger than that. So fear God. Don't fear people that can do terrible things to you. Why? Because he says, you, my friends. And then he goes to talk about hairs on your head. All the hairs on your head are numbered. Why? Because God cares about you. You're my friends. The Father knows everything about you. And you're more value than many sparrows. 
and he cares about the sparrows. Think about how much more he cares about you because you're way more important than sparrows. So you're my friends, and because you're my friends, right, I'm telling you to fear God and then don't fear anything else. The whole point here is when it comes to anything but God, do not fear. Our theme is about fearing the Lord, right? That's the title, revival, fear of God. But I want to say, and now tonight we need to talk about every other fear you have. Because if I were honest, one-on-one with you, and we sat down, and we got to know each other well, I could really get into your head and find out what are you afraid of, okay? There would be a problem if there's anything you're afraid of, according to our theme passage here, that, that's not God. So if you're taking notes, let's put it down. Number one, don't fear anything but God. That's the key for people that are friends with, with God. You're friends with Christ, you're friends with the Father, then you should not fear anything but God. Because even if the worst thing happened to you, the worst thing you should be afraid of, someone hurting you and killing you, you're not even, you're not even allowed to fear that. Fear not. Because you are friends with the one who has the authority to cast you into hell. But instead, he sent his son to die for you. And if you get right with him by having the fear of the Lord and understanding your sin in light of his greatness, then you become reconciled to him. And here's the thing. If you just keep fearing the Lord, you got nothing else to fear. Now, we started on Monday night talking about, at least I spent a minute talking about the Chronicles of Narnia and Christ was depicted as a, a lion in that. And I talked about even fears, things that you would be afraid of, like a lion. And then I compared it to Christ, because C.S. Lewis in his story compared the, the God figure, the Christ figure, to a lion. And if I talked about the, the, the king of the, of the fearless animals, I talk about the lion, right? The king of the jungle. Uh, and, and so he is. But here's the deal, of course. King of the jungle, the strongest person in the world, the scariest thing that could happen in this world. Nothing compared to God. It's so much bigger than that. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1 says, when it comes to comparing fearlessness and ferocity, right? You think about the, the great God. That there is, there's no comparison between lion and, and God. But when we want to depict what Christians are like, what God's people are like compared to everyone else, we, sh- we should be the fearless ones. Now, I've tried to say, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God. But now I'm saying, listen, fear God and don't fear anything else. And if you don't fear anything else, guess what? You'll be so different than everyone else. You'll be like, in their minds, right, at least objectively, looking at your life, be like, wow, I don't get it. You're not afraid of the stuff everyone else is afraid of. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked will flee when no one pursues them. They're scared. They're scared of a lot of things. They're scared of how they look. They're scared of who likes them. They're scared of where they're going to go to college. They're scared about how much money they're going to make. They're scared of a lot of things. And and, and here's the thing. If you fear God, you don't fear any of that. The righteous are as bold. They live their lives like a lion. They're not afraid of anything. They're just afraid of one person. And that person is the king of the universe. And they'll always be afraid of the Lord. They'll have a fear, an uncomfortable fear sense of emotions about God, but now that God I've made peace with doesn't mean I ever cease to fear him. I always fear him. That's the beginning of wisdom. I fear God, but in fearing God now, there's nothing else on this earth that I fear. There's nothing else that everyone else is fearing. They will run from a lot of things because they're afraid, but Christians, not afraid. We become, by contrast, like a lion compared to everybody else. Deuteronomy Chapter 31, verse 6, 
Moses says to the people, he's about to die. He's going to leave this next generation to go into the promised land. And he says to them, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. You're going to go in and you're going to face a lot of bad things. It's like us sitting here today and saying, you're going to go back to another fall, August, September, and you're going to go back into all your regular life. You're going to be bombarded with a lot of things, a lot of thoughts, a lot of philosophy, a lot of people, a lot of influences, a lot of temptations, a lot of junk. But listen, don't be afraid. Don't fear them. They're going to go battle with these Canaanites. You're going to battle with all the things in this world. He says, don't be afraid. Why? For it is the Lord, your God, who goes with you. See, if God is with us, then the fear should go away because there's only one that I fear, and that one has drawn close to me, called me into walking with him through life. I don't fear anything else. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Now, if I know I got the most fearsome person in all the universe with me, and I'm with him. I've made peace with him. I have a relationship with him. My sin is no longer blocking my relationship with him. Then there's nothing else that I fear. I can be strong and courageous. So if I'm not going to be afraid of anything, here's letter A. It's because God is going to be with me. There's the key. If I can think about God walking with me through everything that I do, I have no fear about what happens, what I get rejected from, what I don't get, what I accomplish, what I don't accomplish, what trouble I get in, what pain I go through, what diseases I get diagnosed with. It doesn't matter because I'm walking through all those things with God. This was a key feature of all that Jesus taught when he said he's going to go back to the Father and they really recognize the greatness of Christ. He says, I'm going to ask the Father. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. He's going to give you another, a helper, a parakletos. That's the word translated helper. Parakletos in Greek, para is, the, is a preposition next to or alongside of. Kletos comes from kaleo, which means to call in. And, and here's the thing. I'm going to go. You're not going to physically see me, but I'm going to send a helper, a parakletos with you, the spirit of truth. And this is the key doctrine of understanding that God has said, though I'm going to leave you and I, you're not going to follow me around the world, right? And going through, you know, the villages of, of, of ancient Israel or the modern cities of America, you don't have me. You don't get to see my fingernails or my face or my, my hands. You don't get to see me. But I'm going to send the third person of the triune Godhead, the spirit of truth, whom the world, they don't have it. It's one of the reasons they're never going to be bold as a lion. They may be foolish, but we are the ones that have this spirit if we're Christians because they don't know him. They don't know God. They haven't seen him. They don't know him, but you know him and the spirit dwells with you, but he'll be in you. And that's a kind of connection with God that they didn't have the way that we're having it in this era in the Old Testament times. Wasn't quite the same. And he says, you just know you're going to have this relationship with God that is going to take you through your life. And it's as though I'm there. You're not going to be orphaned. I am going to be with you in the sense that the third person of the Godhead, the Father's going to send another. He's going to help you through this whole life. And you can be bold and courageous because the Lord is with you. When Jesus left in Matthew 28, as he sat there on, uh, stood there on the Mount of Olives across from the Temple Mount, he said at the end of the Great Commission, and behold, which is a weird way to say it. We don't let the Bible talk, but it's the, it's the verb to look. You, you got to look here, see this, understand it, perceive it. I am with you always to the end of the age. So, of course, these 11 weren't going to live to the end of the age. 
we're still going as followers of Christ, as people that recognize our sin, acknowledge God's greatness, see that he's in charge. We see that Christ lived for us, died for us. We know we're sinners. We put our trust in him. We've turned from sin. We now live like he's our boss. So we're the ones that get this promise. Christ is with us all the way to the end of this era of time until he comes back. And so here we sit, the Christians in the room, with the Bible promising that Christ's going to be with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that is the thing that's supposed to make us courageous because God is going to be with us. And the way we tap into that every day is by praying, reading our Bibles, spending time in fellowship, having people be able to speak into my life about the realities of my Christian walk. All of that gives me that reality, that sense of God speaking to me in the book that he wrote, me being able to speak to God and have my prayers empowered by the Spirit, Romans 8 says, and have the Spirit work within the community of believers that I'm not forsaking. That's why you'll always need Bible, prayer, and fellowship of church, always. And anybody who stops doing any of those three, we got a problem, right? Well, how can the Spirit of God dwell in you if those aren't the things that are working out their way into your daily schedules? This is what we need. And in that, God says, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. And because of that, we don't fear anything but God because God's going to walk us through this thing. And I have no fear of, of doing without. If I don't get the relationship I want, if I don't get the job I want, if I don't get the look that I want, if I don't get the, the future that I want, if I don't get the kids that I want, if I don't get the career that I want, if I don't get the health that I want, whatever it is that you don't get, I'm not going to fear any of that. Here's the word deprivation. I'm not going to fear going without. Jesus talked a lot about this. If I said, how much money do you want to make? Right? How much money is a in household income? You marry a guy, how much do you want him to make? What, what kind of money and provision? What, what size house do you want? Right? What kind of neighborhood do you want to live in? What kind of car do you want to drive? I mean, if I start thinking about all that and you think, wow, it, it starts to bother me that perhaps I'm not smart enough to earn all this. Right? I, I'm not talented enough. I'm not gifted enough. Maybe I won't get all this. Maybe I'll have knees. Maybe I'll be in debt. Maybe I'll be like people I hear about that, that, that go without all the, the basics of life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, listen, keep your life free from the love of money. Stop worrying about that. Stop chasing all of this. And be content with what you have. Doesn't matter what you're driving. Doesn't matter how you look. Doesn't matter what household you have. How big your home is. For he has said, what's the answer? Every time, I will never leave and never forsake you. I will be with you so it doesn't matter how much money you have. I will be with you. Doesn't matter how much stuff you have. I'll be with you. doesn't matter how expensive your clothes are. doesn't matter what your standard of living is. That doesn't matter. People care so much about that, and they're afraid if they don't have the opportunities to have the stuff that they want or make the money that they want. Christians are different. Christians are supposed to be different because we don't fear that. I don't care. I, I have so many people in the church that are my age, for instance, that are looking down the corridor the next 10, 20 years, and they're concerned about their retirement money. How much retirement? I don't care. Do I save? Sure, I save. Do I, I, I put money in, in a retirement plan like most of the people my age, I, and, and, and it's in stocks or whatever it's in. I never check it. I don't care. I just don't care. At the end of the day, I don't worry about it because I don't worry as a Christian because the only one I fear is God. And even if I had millions of dollars stacked up where I could go and buy some vacation homes or travel the world or retire or whatever other people want to do when they get to be 70 years old, here's the thing. God could take all of that away in a, in a, in a heartbeat. All the stuff that I could accumulate and then say, well, I feel okay now. I'm not afraid can go away like that. 
So the Bible says, listen, I'm not going to fear what everybody else fears. Whatever it is that you want that you may not have, and you're not, you're not too young to have a, a, a lot of the concerns about you doing without the kinds of things that other people around you have. And here's the thing, Christians don't worry about that. Real Christians don't worry about it. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of what they don't get. Jesus said, look at the birds, Matthew 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, right? They don't go out there and put you know, seeds in the ground and take their, you know, their plows and, 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 and plow the ground and they don't reap the, the fruit of the ground. They don't gather into barns so they have enough for the winter. No, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Again, the answer is always this. The Lord is with his creation. The Lord is going to be with you. Of course, the birds aren't, they don't have to be saved, right? They're, they're God's birds. But we have Satan's people and God's people. So I got to become God's person. When I'm God's person, then I'm like God's birds because all the birds are God's birds because we don't have a sinful moral problem. We have a sinful moral problem. I need to be God's person. When I'm God's person, I can be like a bird here and it really doesn't matter that much. I don't care. I can be wise and say, yeah, I should put some money aside for groceries every week, but whatever. I'm not worried. He goes on to say, are you not more value than they? Of course, God's going to look to me more than he's going to look to the birds because I'm his child. I'm right with him. I'm not worried. And you shouldn't be worried. You should never be afraid. You should never be afraid of anything but God. And if you're afraid of God in the right, proper, biblical way, then you're not going to worry about that stuff. You just won't. King David said this, Psalm 37, 25 through 28, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And he goes on to say in verse 28, because he will not forsake his saints. These are his people. Those are the people that have friendship with God. They have friendship with God because they fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. Those are his people. And guess what? He's never going to have them begging for bread. It's not. His children aren't going to be out there trying to say, please help me out. They won't have to because God's going to take care of them just like he takes care of the birds. I may not have everything I want, but I'm never afraid that I won't have what I need. And you need to think the same way. When you're looking at other people that have more than you and you start becoming afraid, you're fearing things that you should never fear. You're supposed to fear the Lord. You fear the Lord, then you understand this. God can do anything he wants. He can move money around any way he wants. He can take something from here and put it over here. He raises up, he puts down, he, he exalts, he humbles, he makes alive and he kills. I mean, I'm not worried about God taking care of my finances or my stuff. I know it's, more, it's about more than money. Matthew chapter 6, when he says anxious about clothing, you know, people put on clothing, different kinds of clothing, because they're concerned about how they look. You might be afraid that you're not going to look or be as attractive as you want to be. And you're going to be afraid that you won't be the kind of person that you want to be when it comes to something that goes beyond the, the material things of life, right? I won't get the relationships that I want. He says, why are you anxious about how you look? Another way to, to, to read this sentence about clothing. Why do you care about how attractive you are? Seriously. Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't spin right, or toil. They don't make their clothes. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The lilies of the field are pretty because God makes them pretty and attractive. And here's the deal. You don't have to worry about things that everyone else worries about. They're all concerned about stuff you should never be concerned about, you should never be afraid of. And the Bible says, because God is the one who takes care of all of this. And I'm not afraid. I mean, I hope you understand that. God can provide for you. 
it, 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 regardless of whether you think your nose is too big or you're too tall or too lanky or too fat or too skinny, none of that ultimately matters. God is a God who says, do not fear what you look like. Don't fear how you present, how you present yourself. Some of us are so concerned about that. That's got to stop. If God's so close, he says, the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not clothe, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Where's your faith in the God that says, I'm your friend, right? The friend of God, I fear God, I fear God, he's my friend, he is now my king, he's going to take care of me, his child. I'm never going to fear doing without, and you shouldn't either, because I don't fear anything but God, and you shouldn't fear anything but God. And it's not just deprivation, but it's also the stuff that comes at you. You should not be afraid of trouble. You should not be afraid of things that come into your life that you think, well, this is bad. This is bad. Here's something bad. Uh, a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee, when you have a lot of seasoned mariners, a lot of seasoned fishermen, they've been on that, 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 that sea their whole lives, and they're terrified that they're going to die. So that means this about the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was really bad. And here they are having a really bad experience hit their life. I just wonder if I said, what's a really bad experience that has hit your life lately? Here's the deal. As a Christian, if you fear God, you don't fear anything else. When that hits you, you're as bold as a lion. See, it's just the whiff of that. It's just the, hif, the hint of that that makes the wicked run in fear. The righteous look at square in the eye and say, okay, here it comes. I didn't know this was coming, but here it comes. And Jesus in that boat, you remember, was asleep. He's calm. He's not worried. And he didn't want you to be worried. Jesus knew God was his father, wasn't worried about drowning on the Sea of Galilee. And you shouldn't be worried about whatever comes your way. Psalm 23, verse 4, I think you remember this famous psalm. says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of... So you've got a pathway you're going to walk on. And you're going to hit some things on that pathway you're not going to like. I guarantee you're going to say, this is bad. The next bad thing you face, whatever evil comes your way, you get diagnosed with something, you get hit with some situation, your, fam your parents start to, to fall apart, go through divorce, whatever comes your way, I'm just saying to you, you don't fear. Why? Because again, it's the same answer. Because God is with you. If God is going to walk you through this, it doesn't matter. You've got the king of the universe walking next to you through whatever comes your way. Fear no evil. And this isn't written by, you know, King David who just sat in a palace his whole life. You know, half of David's adult life, he was being chased by the former king. King Saul was trying to track him down and hunt him down. Everyone was out to kill him. He had to go out of the country and live in a foreign land because everyone in the royal army was trying to execute him. So David knows what it's like to be able to say, I get this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't need to stress out about anything is another way to translate that. No, I don't, I don't need anything. I'm okay. I'm okay with the way things are. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You got to get to that place. If you fear God and it's real to you, then you don't fear anything else. And David knew what it was like to be under threat of death and he wasn't afraid. Here's a passage for you. If you've ever been in the desert when the wind's whipping up, we've got a little bit of wind starting to pick up tonight, but if we were out in the middle of a non-developed place, and yet the, the wind storm becomes a dust storm, uh, there's something God has created, of course, that is so sensitive and so important 
your eyeball, that that becomes an illustration back in Deuteronomy regarding God's relationship with you. God being the person. Take a look at how it's described here, how you're described in this passage. The Lord's portion is his people. In other words, this is my thing. This is the thing I care about. This is my inheritance, my people. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. So picture the dust storm in the desert. And he encircled him and he cared for him. So the first picture here is, is someone in the middle of a storm and he's got this person that he's wrapping his arms around and protecting. Then it gets even more personal. He kept him as the apple of his eye. I'd read that verse as a kid dozens of times. I had no idea what it meant. I pictured like a red apple that you would eat off of a tree. The apple of your eye, unfortunately, I wish it were translated differently, but it's the, it's the, it's the cornea, it's the lens of your eye. See, in other words, if you're in a howling wasteland and there's dust coming your way, I guarantee you one thing you do is you're not going to have wide open eyes kind of watching the dust storm come your way. You're going to squint your eyes. You're going to try to even shield your eyes because the most important thing isn't if dirt gets in your ear or dirt hits off your chin or dirt gets on your chest. It's whether or not dirt goes in your eyes. And the Bible says that God is so connected with his people and as people are to see how connected they are with God, the most powerful one in the universe, that when anything comes at you, it's coming at God, but it's coming at his eyes. And he's going to protect you. He's going to take special interest in the suffering and attacks and troubles or storms that come your way. Look at the next verse, verses 11 and 12. Like an eagle stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, on its feathers. The Lord alone guided him. Same picture. The people are God's portion. The people of Israel in this case, and now the people of, of God are not just Israel, those trusting in Christ, but us today, the Gentiles. And he says, it, it, it's the picture of God saying, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. I'll take care of you. I'll walk you through whatever comes your way. And you can imagine as the pastor of a fairly good-sized church how often I hear news of, of healthy people getting really badly sick. Like their doctor saying, well, you got 12 months to live. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. And the question is, how are those people going to respond? And I'll tell you, the best way to prepare for whatever trouble's coming next is to fear God and nothing else. Because when they say, oh, you're really sick, you're going to die, you're going to die soon, and you start to all of a sudden recognize that the, the, the horizon of your life that you thought was way out there blurry all of a sudden got really close. I may not see but one more Christmas, then I'm going to be dead. I mean, I got people that, that happens to all the time. And then they start to think, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. But the reality is, we've got to say, there's not a single illness that comes into a person's life that God is not there saying, when that illness comes at you, it's coming at me. It's like you are the lens of my eyeball. That's how much interest I take in whatever trouble comes your way. Remember that story when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their Babylonian names, got thrown in the fiery furnace? I mean, that's certainly a story everyone in the room has heard. Those three men got thrown in the fire, but do you remember what happened when they got thrown in the fire? God gave this picture to the Babylonian king to make a very clear point to us thousands of years later. He asks Nebuchadnezzar, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said, yes, sir, we did. He says, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. 
I mean, the whole point here, though, it's not explained any more than it's like, wow, he's an interesting looking fourth guy. The point is that God, as he says in Isaiah, is going to walk through the fire with any of you that get put into the fire. Now, here's the deal. You get put into the fire, you're probably going to burn up and die. You get some kind of terminal cancer, you're probably going to end up dying from that cancer. You get leukemia, whatever it might be. You get in a bad car accident and, and, and you're on life support, doctor says you're going to die, probably going to die. That's how things work. But the reality is you're not going to go through any of the fire, any of the illness, any of the trauma, any of the problem without the fourth person if you've got three, two buddies with you. You are always going to go with that fourth person. And that text, of course, says he's one like the, the son of the gods, which, of course, the son of God has promised to never leave us and forsake us. Back to the beginning of our key passage here. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, there's nothing more they can do. But here's the deal. They could kill your body. You could walk out here tonight. Some guys could show up with guns and shoot you in the head and kill you. And here's the, the, the promise of God. He didn't say, I'm not going to let any of you be killed. You're all going to grow, you know, to be hundreds of years old until I come back. We're all going to die. Until Christ comes back, all of us are going to grow old and we're going to die. Or we're going to be in an accident and we're going to die. Or we're going to get some disease and we're going to die. But the Bible says God is going to walk us through that because even if someone kills us, even if disease ends our life, even if you think of that as the worst thing that could happen, you say, well, that's obvious that I should fear that. The Bible says there's nothing else that can happen but to end your life. There's nothing more that can happen. What's the thing that God can do? He can deal with you after you die and could even cast you into hell. Guess what? There's no one that can cast you into hell but God. And you have become God's friend through the gospel and... There's nothing to fear. If you hear that I got killed in a car accident on the way back from Lake Havasu to Orange County, just know this, Psalm 139, 16. God saw with his eyes. Your eyes saw Mike Fabars' unformed substance before I was even born. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So every day that God had planned for me to live on planet Earth was all planned by God and put, as it were, in a book. He put it in the annals, in the recorded plan and decree of God. So if you hear that I get killed on Friday on the way back in some head-on accident with a big semi, right? come to my funeral and, and, and don't giggle through it. Be sad a little bit. That would be okay. I'll miss you. You'll miss me. Fantastic. But know this, I couldn't have lived another day on planet Earth. I couldn't have, because every day that was ever planned for me before one of my days started, God had planned when they would end, and that's just how it is, and here's the deal. If I've made friends with the God who has the authority to cast me into hell, and he said, no, I'm not going to cast you into hell. I've made my son who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become my righteousness, then here's the deal. You got nothing to worry about, because Mike Fabars didn't get cast into hell. I made peace with God. I made friendship with God. I feared God. And here's the deal. Regardless of how well or how poorly I live the Christian life, there's nothing else for me but to finish out the days that God had, had planned for me. If I don't fear that, right, what else is there to fear? The biggest fear most people have is how their life might end. And if I'm not afraid of that, what is there to be afraid of? The righteous are as bold as, as a lion. The wicked, they flee when no one pursues them. Which, by the way, is the way 
a horrific early death is the way a lot of the early Christians died. And not just early Christians, people all over the world are being persecuted by non-Christians and they're hated because of these satanic governments and satanic groups and religious groups that are out to kill Christians. And a lot of the Christians, as you might know, were killed in the early church by the Roman officials, including, by the way, the Apostle Paul, who said this about his impending death by the Roman government. He was going to have his head cut off. He knew it was coming, and he'd already told Timothy, it's done. I know this is it. I've gotten out of jail before, but I'm not getting out this time. My life has come to an end. I'm ready to die. I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering, which means he's not going to pick it back up. It's going to go into the dirt, a drink offering. You, you take something valuable, you pour it out. And, and he says, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight of it. He knew his life was over. But he says this in verse 18 of the last book he ever wrote, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Was it evil or righteous to have the Roman officials kill a good Christian pastor like Paul? It was evil, but the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. But he already told Timothy he wasn't going to be rescued, not rescued from jail, not rescued from execution, but he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. See, the day I die and the day I trust that you die as a friend of God that's the day you get taken safely into the kingdom. The only person that can cast me into hell and has authority is God, I've made peace with God. If you made peace with God, you need to make, peace. You need to make peace with God. Because then you won't fear anything. You won't fear anything. You won't fear what you won't get in this life, and you won't fear the trouble that will come, even if the trouble is the ultimate of you being persecuted and murdered. So there's nothing left for us to do but to decide to be fearless, and we should all decide to be fearless. If you're a Christian, you fear the Lord, you don't fear anything else, and we just make a daily decision, I'm not going to be afraid. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into that fire, you might remember, but just before they were, in Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, they said this to the king, which would be scary enough to have a conversation with a monarch that could throw you into this fire. And yet these young teenage guys said, God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. You know what? Even though you're about to throw us in that, God could get us out of this mess. I don't know how, but he could. He says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, because they were pretty confident it was going to happen. Next words, but if not, here's fearlessness, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's the whole reason they were getting tossed into the fiery furnace. They said, we're not going to sweat it. If you kill us, to use Paul's words now, we're now we're just going to be ushered into the heavenly kingdom. Because God is not going to cast us into hell. You can cast us into a fire, but you're not going to cast us into the eternal fire. Only God can do that. We've made friends with God. So we're good. So there's nothing left for us to do but to resolve to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, hey, we're not afraid. Psalm chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I laid down and slept. And I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now, the first thing that we need to recognize that I am with God when I sleep. If I wake up in the morning, it's the Lord that got me through the night. I said it last night. He created us and he sustains us. You make it through another 24. If I get to preach to you tomorrow night, I'm alive and you're alive by tomorrow. Right? It's the Lord that sustained you. That's foundational. And if you understand that, that's called the fear of the Lord. I know God sustains me, he created me, he could end my life at any time. If I laid down and slept and woke up again, it's the Lord that made that happen, the Lord that sustained me. Therefore, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. I don't care how many there are that have set themselves against me all around. Now, what are the odds that you're going to wake up alive if you go to sleep tonight? Probably pretty good because you've done it thousands of times. 
But here's the deal. What if you go one against thousands of people that want to kill you? What are the odds of you surviving? They seem pretty low. But here's the deal. I know that it's really about God getting me through the night, and it's about God getting me through whatever trouble comes my way, even if it's thousands of people. So I will not be afraid. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided. Listen, we think God's going to get us out of this jam, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to, we're not going to bend. We don't care. We're not afraid. We're going to keep doing the right thing. It's all about the combination of verse 5 and verse 6 in this passage. You've got to know that God is the one in charge of all things. God is the one that you know you fear to even keep you alive for another day. And then you won't fear the thousands. You'll make that resolve. You'll say, I'm not afraid. I'm going to decide and, and resolve not to be afraid. Psalm 27, 3 and 4, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Right? Why? The war arise against me, I will, I, I, yet I will be confident. Why? Because one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I'd be a really good fighter. No, no, no. One thing that, I've, that I want to seek after, that I can be close to God. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to inquire in his temple. I want to draw near to God. It's not that here's the deal. I'm afraid of this. I just want to be really good at understanding how to fix the trouble I'm in. It's I'd like to be near God. Because I cannot be, I'm not going to not be, I'm going to not be afraid if I can be near him. Because the whole point is me knowing that God is with me and that I'm with him. And then I'm going to decide, I'm going to be confident. I'm not going to be afraid. Guys, don't be afraid. The only thing to fear is God. If you fear God, all of the other things go to the background. Real quickly here. No God is going to be your defender. And I mean that in a way that may be different than you think. Because if you go down in some persecution, right? you think, well, how's God your defender? Well, let's look at it this way. It's about the ultimate eternal perspective. Psalm 62, 5 through 7, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. Right? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. I'm just going to wait for God. My hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. I will not be shaken. On God rests my salvation. So I know I'm going to be okay eternally. He's my rock. I'm trusting in him. And here's the deal. I just know he's going to defend me against things eternally. Now, now follow what I'm saying here. If he's my defender, I know this. If I trust in him, in the end, I will not be disappointed. I will not be ashamed. I'm not going to be let down because I've said, I'm trusting God with my life. Whenever it ends, whatever trouble comes, whatever deprivation I have that I don't get what I want, I know he's going to reward me for being fearless and saying, I trust in God. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my bank account. I'm not going to trust in my health. I'm going to be fearless. And the Bible says he's going to reward us. No matter what army may rise up against us, no matter what diseases, what problems, what, what bankruptcy, what divorce may hit your family, it doesn't matter. Luke 6, 22 through 23, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Which, by the way, the battle that goes on behind the scenes that brings a lot of these bad things toward us, the Bible says is because, 1 Peter chapter 5, we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion, Sorry to add another illustration about a lion. Seeking someone to devour. Job was attacked in his health. Job was attacked in having people that he loved die. Job was attacked in having all of his money go away. Job was attacked because Satan was attacking him. And the point is, a lot's going to come your way that's trouble. 
and it'll be demonically inspired. The, the, it will be an attack. And, and it says, blessed are you, which means it's going to be okay. That's fine. You'll be, you'll be fine. Blessed is a word that means it, it's, it's, it's fine. Sometimes translated happy. It goes on to make it very clear. You should be happy. You ought to rejoice in the day that those things happen. The trouble comes. Why? You should leap for joy. What kind of happiness? That's crazy happiness. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. I know that if I'm fearless... When bad things happen, I'm still fine. I'm, I, I have this blessed perspective, this happy perspective. I can rejoice. I can say, everything's fine. I got cancer. They say I got 12 months to live. I'm fine. I can rejoice. If something comes my way, whether it's demonic or human, I can say, it doesn't matter what kind of onslaught I'm up against, because I can look back at the uh, ancestors of Israel attacking people, just like the demons did in the Old Testament, the people did in the Old Testament to the prophets, and the prophets were honored, the prophets are exalted. When Christ comes back uh, to the apostles on the um, Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's got Moses and Elijah next to him. I mean, they're exalted people, and yet a lot of people hated them. Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, right? Elijah was spurned by a lot of people, Jezebel and many others. All I'm saying is, if I understand God is rewarding and making heroes out of people that were attacked in a lot of trouble and went through a lot of deprivation, then I know what matters is that God is my defender and I'm going to be confident in that. Hebrews 10 verses 35 and 36 says, don't throw away your confidence. You ought to be confident. You ought to be bold. You ought to be fearless. It's got a great reward. God is going to reward my fearlessness, my confidence. For you have need of endurance. Certainly, the more that comes at you, the more you need to endure so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And God says he's going to reward those who face the challenges of life fearlessly. What's your challenge? What's your deprivation? What's your attack? What's your trouble? Just know this. God is your defender, and he's going to reward you if you boldly stay confident in him. And now, this may not be a pleasant way to end it, but whatever comes at you, including the things that may not be human, right? The disease that comes at you. When Satan attacked Job with his disease of his skin, it was a horrible skin disease that he had, right? Here's what I know for sure. The defender of Job, because Job feared God and Job was a friend of God, I know this. Satan will be punished for everything he did against Job. He is a defender who not only rewards Job's faithfulness and his patience and his endurance, but he pays back those who come against his people, so let's just remember this. I know you've heard this verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Now, I don't want to read that too quickly because I want you to catch the first word, beloved. You're loved by God. God has set his love on you. If you're a Christian, you fear him. You're a friend of God. Well, then here's the thing you need to never do. Never need to avenge yourself. You never need to pay back. You never need to not only pay back people that persecute you, you never need to pay back insult for insult, the Bible says. I don't need to. Why? Because I'm the apple of God's eye. God calls me his friend. He's, he's the defender of my life. But I'll leave it to God, to the wrath of God, the anger of God. That's what wrath means, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You start messing with the eyeball of God, God is going to get back at you, guarantee it. All I got to do is stand back and watch him do it. He may take a little longer at it than I think I would want him to do, but here's the thing, he's always going to settle the score. One more passage on this. It's a hard one, but look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 
God considers it just. That means it's the right thing to do. Just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Every demon that's thrown something at you to trip you up, every person that's attacked you or spurned you or excluded you or reviled your name as evil because of Christ. You've done the right thing. You've trusted in God. God takes it personally. He thinks it's the right thing to repay them with affliction, the people that have afflicted you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to, as to us. Paul's being afflicted as well. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire, and one day he's coming back, and he will judge those who have judged the people that are friends of God, the people that have persecuted the friends of God, the people that fear God who have been attacked, the people that have attacked them or afflicted them are going to be retributed, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God, presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. They're going to hear from God, depart from me, I never knew you, into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. All of that takes place and God is going to say this is the right thing to do. They afflicted my people, the apple of my eye. I'm going to respond with justice. 1 Samuel 23, 25. When David was chased, and that picture I showed you was Saul with his spear going at David. Of course, he got out of the jam there, but he was chased by the armies as he went from the wilderness in one country to the wilderness in another country. He was in Maon, the wilderness of Maon, and the Saul heard and pursued David in the wilderness. And that word pursued in the Old Testament Hebrew, that's the word radof. So you can see David, a little graphic I gave here, running away from the people that were trying to kill him. That word radof, I just want to keep that in your mind because it's the same word that shows up right here. Surely goodness and mercy shall radof, shall follow me all the days of my life. So goodness and mercy are chasing after David, pursuing David, and yet in his real life, what was pursuing him when he was writing these things is all the people that want to do him harm, all the trouble, all the people want to steal from him, take things from him, all the people that want him to have deprivation or trouble, they're chasing him. But as he looks over his shoulder and writes Psalm 23, he says, what's really chasing me is God's mercy and his goodness. And in the end, you know how that ends? The next phrase in verse 6, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm running through this life. There's deprivation. There's trouble. There's things that afflict me. But I know in the end, because I'm a friend of God, I'm running into the house of God. And when I get there, the gate's shut behind me. My enemies are afflicted who've been afflicting me, whether real, natural, demonic, or human. And I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you've got that squared away, you've got no fear of anything. You have no fear of sickness. You have no fear of enemies. You have no fear of people making fun of you. You have no fear of your problems or your family or your trouble or people that have left you or, or, or death in your family or any. You don't fear because you see this, that God is a God who's got two things coming after you, mercy and goodness. And in the end, it ends the way it ought to. The fear of God will take care of all those other fears. And that's what we need today more than anything is Christians that are going to be courageous. And I trust that you will as you understand the fear of God. Let's pray. God, help us all to think through the realities of who you are in light of who we are, to see our sin, to confess it to you, to have you draw near to us, 
because of what Christ has done, to have reconciliation, to have a relationship that I can say, I am your child and you're my father, and therefore, because I fear you, I am your friend. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. And in having that relationship fixed, God, there's nothing else to be afraid of. Whoever is against me ends up, in the end, being opposed by you. Anyone that would threaten me, any illness that would bother me, anything that is a loss in my life or trouble, God, I just need to see this all in perspective. I want to be a, a righteous person that's as bold as a lion and afraid of nothing but you. So fix that for us, I, I pray, God, in a way that would be so profound and clear that everyone would know that we humbly worship God, we fear God. We care about submission and obeying and honoring one another and looking out for others' interests, but at the core of our own heart, we're never unsettled by the troubles of this world. We know in the end what's following us, what's chasing us down is your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your kindness, and it's all going to catch up to us the day we cross from this life into the next. No fear. God, help us to have no fear of the things in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.